0: The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the securities discussed. For more information,
1: head over to investsmart.com.au. Welcome to Skin in the Game. I'm your host Nathan Bells, your portfolio manager at Intelligent an Investor, and I'm joined by Alex Hughes, our small cap manager. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Nathan. This is probably not one that, uh, or it's actually not true, You've got a, you have got one interest in the, this group of stocks. But the first question today is, Commonwealth Bank has committed additional funds for remediation, this is following the, the Hayne inquiry, uh, particularly around the fee for no service issue. Are we at the beginning or the end of provisions for rem- remediation? How should investors be thinking about this issue, not only with the banks, but with AMP and IWOF, etc.? Yeah, I think we're at the beginning. I think if you look overseas, um, there's been evidence
0: that once provisions start, they continue for quite a period and you've seen the banks increase their provisions for their wealth management businesses recently and I think that's going to follow on with IWF and AMP as well. Um, IWF has... Declared about 30 million and there's a lot of scepticism about that in the market and so I think directionally that is going to increase. I do think that is factored into the share price. I think people are expecting that to be higher and, and that is baked in somewhat. Um... And with IWF in particular, you also have to consider that um, part of their book now came from ANZ, and ANZ have backstopped a, a portion of that. So it's really about the legacy book for IWF. But yeah, so I think directionally up, but the, the quantum of these remediation payments
1: is is hard to put a finger on. I covered the UK banks in a former life, and only uh, this coming August is they're finally putting an end to uh, one particular. Uh, remediation which has cost Lloyds Bank I think about 18 billion pounds so far and we're that's 10 years on from the GFC. Staggering. (laughs) I don't think we're gonna see anything like that in Australia I I feel like with the big four banks they seem to have provisioned quite a lot and they seem to be actually near the end in in contrast to IOOF but the thing for me is just just how little the remediation costs are compared to how much money these guys make I mean Commonwealth makes around ten billion dollars a year I think the remediation is one or two billion in total depending on how you look at it and i think the, they they think they've at least provisioned appropriately so I think maybe we're getting towards the end for the big banks but I think the more important thing in terms of the four banks in particular is just what the profit margins and credit growth and just all the fundamental factors look like for these banks. Yeah Uh, it's helpful when you've got other revenue lines to cushion the blow from your wealth management provisions.
0: If you look at some of the smaller wealth management providers out there one that comes to mind is Centrepoint Alliance. And they've, they're have they still provisioning and incurring losses because of advice that they gave pre-GFC from, from a business they bought that got into trouble back then so that, that I think they've paid over $60 million and it's just plagued them for a decade now so yeah if you've got no other revenue lines it can be really challenging so it's helpful to have other parts mm-hmm. to your
1: business. Mm, also helps be one quarter of a regulated oligopoly in Australia. <laughs> There was a feature article in the weekend uh, discussing the potential for wrap providers like Hub and Netwealth to make a lot of money from the shift out of self-managed super funds into wraps. Is this opportunity real or how are you thinking about the wrap provider space? Yeah, the
0: o- opportunity is definitely real. I, I'd like to start though with just framing what you read in the newspaper because you you, you often hear about these great thematics and they sound really exciting but oftentimes they're widely known and they're already factored in. Um, So I I think Harbour Net Wealth and and a few of the other ones will grow a lot as advisors become independent and move their books onto independent platforms and some of the newer, more modern platforms. Um, But the share prices are anticipating that um, quite a lot. So it may not necessarily result in great investor returns even though the businesses might grow a lot. Um, oh, just to provide a, a few counter arguments, um, there is a lot of competition in that space. There's many um, platforms out there and so they're all competing for your, for your business um, and that um, can lead to margin pressure and, and, and we might see more of that. We, we did see uh, BT, RAP, reduce its fees recently and the industry followed and um, that lowered the value of some of these businesses and that could continue. Um, and there is also the, the, the general question about the economics of the business and how the pie is shared because at the moment you've got the fund managers and the platform providers getting about half of the pie and there's a debate about you know, whether it should be evenly shared or whether the fund manager who pr- you know, actually provides the product and arguably adds value where, you know, the platform provider is merely providing distribution and a few other bells and whistles, you know, whether, you know, perhaps the fund manager should get more in that pie. Um, So that's a raging debate. I'm not sure how
1: that will play out, but it's something to think about. I can speak uh, from experience in a former life that distribution in the funds management business is absolutely critical and you can never underestimate the value of it. And there are plenty of small fund managers out there with excellent performance, uh, which is simply just in as. Situation where they can build a large funds management business simply because of the distribution and just how competitive it is. Yeah, that's uh, exactly right. Yeah, we were talking about this <laughs> that yesterday, weren't we? So
0: yeah, if you're a, a good manager with with no means to getting to the the end user, then
1: the you know you're not going to really attract much fun. I know uh, net wealth. There was a presentation uh, the CEO and founder did on the ASX uh, recently, which you can um, Google. He talked about a the product they've got, uh, which is essentially like the industry funds where they've got a mix of uh, investors or clients that uh, some are in an accumulation phase like us and then they've got another whole bunch of people that aren't and if these franking credits disappear then it's okay they'll still get the benefit because they've got so many young people still in the accumulation phase paying taxes essentially and so they'll get the benefit by mixing the pool of investors but I don't... It's hard the the one article I've got in my head that just seemed to make the most sense to me, but it's it's hard trying to generalize generalize on these things is that there's a lot of people that are, that are going that will potentially be impacted by uh, no franking credits or no rebates uh, if you're a low low uh, taxpayer that have got very large capital gains on those high dividend paying stocks like the banks. And the capital gains on those um, positions must be extremely large, and if you're going to have to pay, the tax and then roll over, roll your money over after you've paid the tax into an industry fund or into something like net wealth that has these products where you can take advantage of the franking credits I just don't see how that makes any sense when you're going to have to pay so much to the tax man just to get a what's a fairly small franking uh, credit uh, advantage uh, in in context of those capital gains but Um, It remains to be seen, but just in terms of anyone who's feeling the pressure to actually do something in advance of this, I'd just say, um, just relax, don't do anything yet. It's got a long way to go. Labor's got to get voted in first. Uh, Then the the laws have to change, and there's a lot of talk about uh, it actually being watered down to get through and perhaps putting a limit. Uh, on the amount of franking credits you can claim and if that's the case then a lot of people will just be unaffected anyway.
0: Yeah it's a great point. Uh, inertia is really powerful especially in financial services <laughs> and when there's uncertainty people often stay put so yeah you might see more of that in the
1: coming years and months. Alex you got some comments on Freelancer?
0: Yeah Freelancer, um, I looked at it recently for the second time. Um, I wrote something up on it on Intelligent Investor a few years ago and um, But I wanted to check back into the business just to see if anything had changed and to sort of bring a fresh perspective to the business. Um, And to start, there are a few attractive things about the business. Um, So it has a a network effect, it's a marketplace for employers predominantly in the developed world um, that um, hire freelancers predominantly in the developing world so there's a bit of a wage arbitrage that goes on there. Um, The business also has pretty good unit economics as well so they take 13% from all the work that's done on their platform, that leads to 80% or even higher, 80% gross margins. Um, And their cost structure is predominantly rent and and development staff so that's largely fixed. So if they can grow revenue you should see some healthy returns. Um, And also um, in terms of the management, um, the founder Matt Barry, um, as, as the CEO owns over 40% and another director owns another 40% as well. So um, the free float is tiny, you've got um, the two key people owning the vast majority of the business and that keeps it off the radar to big institutions and you know just the majority of investors out there. Um, so for nimble players like us that's exciting because there's the potential for a, a, a good business to go um, under the radar. Um, so, so what I did this time when I checked back into the business, I wanted to test one of my central assumptions and, and that was that supply is reasonably locked in. And, and that arises because if you're a new freelancer to the website, it's very hard for you to win work because you haven't done any work, you don't have any ratings, you don't have any reviews and so employers are reluctant to trust you. Um, but once you, you get your first chance, you build up a bit of a backlog of work and you get some ratings, it's easier for you, for you to win um, work in the future. And so that, those ratings and reviews locks freelancers in um, because if they move to a, a different freelancing website, they don't have those reviews and so they're going to start at the bottom again. So that was the central assumption that I was wanting to test. Um, and so to test it I actually used freelancers, so I created a contest um, asking freelancers about Freelancer, offered a $50 prize and got about 60 entries. And um, I had a, a range of questions, so I learned a number of things about the business. And the overwhelming responses were that freelancers use all of the other competitors as well as using Freelancer. And so my central assumption that um, suppliers locked in was was broken. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about that, and 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 that for me really weakens the business. There, there might be a network effect here but it, I think it's a weak one. And the key reason for that I think in hindsight is that um, supply asymptotes. And so what that means is um, the, the marginal value of additional freelancers eventually approaches zero. And, and that arises because let's imagine if we create a freelancing website, when we get the first freelancer that's prepared to do some work, that adds a lot of value to the platform. Um, and you get, if, as you get more freelancers that join, that also adds value because it helps with price discovery and also just providing alternatives to that first freelancer. But as more and more freelancers join, it doesn't add any increma- incremental value to the network. Um, I think Uber's the same as well because, you know, just imagine in your neighbourhood if you want to drive somewhere um, you know, if there's one Uber driver in the neighbourhood, that's great, it means you can use the service. If there's five, that's probably good because it helps keep the prices competitive. But if there's a 1,000, um, those incremental 995 drivers add no value to you. And, and because of that factor, it means that competition can come in and they can provide, or they can, sorry, they can attract a small amount of supply and they're able to compete with a business like Freelancer very easily. And the fact that, you know, a big portion of the supply the supply isn't adding any value, they've got an incentive to move to a competing provider. Um, so it just means the the network isn't very strong and the economics won't be very great. Um, so that was a key, key learning point for me and it it's really reduced my interest in the business. Now it could be that if freelancer is able to build another network on top of its of its existing network, similar to what Uber's done with Uber Eats, they might have a decent business. And, and in fact, they're trying to do that with large customers. They've originally started with just you know small um, sort of startup businesses as being the main employers on the website, and now they're trying to move into sort of Fortune 500 companies, and they've recently signed one up. Um, so if they have success there, maybe it could be a, a good business, but um for now i'm skeptical and i'm happy to be on the sidelines
1: next question is i keep hearing about u.s long-term bond rates and their importance why do us 10-year bond rates matter if they matter so there's two main uh, things that i have in my mind regarding uh, the 10-year bond rate in the u.s and that is first of all there's some sort of relationship that uh, depending on who you listen to is, is pretty strong in terms of when the yield curve Uh, turns negative so that's uh, what that's saying is when the short-term rates say the two-year is higher than the long-term or 10-year or 30-year interest rates that's usually uh, suggestive of an impending recession and usually the lag is around 12 months and that recently happened in the US and that's why people are starting to worry uh, is this a sign that the next recession is coming Uh, but it has predicted a few recessions that haven't come as well so it's not a perfect indicator and you have also got very strange monetary policy programs at the moment um, which complicates uh, the situation as well. The other other reason it matters in the US is because people tend to borrow money for very uh, long mortgages in the US based off long term interest rates. So the 10 to 30 year and this is why they have uh, huge governmental uh, organisations called uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae which essentially take uh, a bit like offering insurance on the other side of the trade. Uh, because in the US, you can you essentially fix in your uh, interest rate when you uh, get a mortgage, but you also get the benefit if interest rates fall. Um, so it's a completely different situation to what we have in Australia, where we have variable rates for, for most loans, and for our mortgages, they also tend to be priced off the short-term interest rates. So it's a completely different way the situation works in, in the US. Um, interestingly, also you're able to, up to a limit, uh, your interest repayments are tax deductible as an owner, so they all think we're crazy here in Australia, letting investors or speculators get the tax tax break. Uh, but there are a couple of the reasons why the US 10 year bond matters so much. And what's really important, I think, about credit markets generally is they tend to be a leading indicator for stock markets. So if there's problems in the debt markets, then there's going to be problems in the stock market. And they typically see things before they show up in, in equity markets, even though equity markets tend to um, look sort of 12 months ahead of what the economy is actually doing. And the other thing to really remember about the US debt market is it's really, uh, it is the largest and deepest credit markets uh, in the world and just about every other asset around the world is priced off the rates in the US. So if you start to see problems in the US then generally you're going to start to see problems elsewhere. And to give you just a, one example would be if you start seeing interest rates going up in the US uh, and then potentially Europe, then our big banks have to borrow around 20 to 30% uh, of their uh, credit comes from a wholesale funding overseas and then they'll have to start paying higher interest rates as well. And we've actually got the reverse of that at the moment because interest rates are, are falling. Uh, but it doesn't, low interest rates aren't always a good sign that things are just getting cheaper and profits are going to go up. Low interest rates are really a sign of an unhealthy economy and I think that's what has been lost over the last, I guess, since the GFC, is that we just got so used to low interest rates and we got so used to interest rates falling over the last 30 years, we tend to think of it as a good thing because we just see the upside. But actually, an economy is generally pretty sick if it can't handle interest rates of 2% or 2.5%, which is what we've got around the world at the moment. In fact, the official interest rate in Europe is actually negative 0.4%, which is why bank share prices have been hammered, uh, partly because the profit margins are so poor. So it's a complicated uh, issue and it's in a sense it's quite boring for a lot of people to to think about but it is really important and and long term interest rates in the US uh, are really important for those reasons. Next question, I would be interested in your view of investing in commercial solar farms. While there seems large growth in solar energy production, I worry that the rate of return doesn't justify the risk of committing to a power source with technology that could become outdated.
0: I have nothing intelligent to add, I'm, I'm afraid <laughs> this is not on my radar. Um, it's a, new, a reasonably new asset class um, so we haven't seen the returns over a long period of time so that makes valuing the assets difficult. Um, so I'd caution you on that so yeah, I'm sorry I can't really add anything to that.
1: So my little bit of experience uh, comes from the US where essentially around two or three years ago a lot of people had bit up the price of solar energy companies and then the prices of creating a solar panel and producing a solar panel absolutely collapsed and just absolutely ruined uh, the whole sector it was it was basically a huge bubble and just burst and now um i haven't seen any companies begin i haven't been following it more recently i haven't seen any of these companies producing the sort of long-term returns on capital that would make me feel comfortable as a long-term investor Uh, i know you can sort of get a little bit of exposure through existing uh, energy companies that tend to uh, be slowly investing in in more greener uh, or newer renewable-type energies, Uh, but I've seen more of that in the US than I have in Australia. Uh, So if I was going to approach it, that would be the the way I would approach it, because at least if the returns aren't there and potentially something changes in the subsidies or in the regulatory environment, then at least you're not going to lose your whole investment. So a couple of questions on uh, a couple of small companies. The first one is uh, Raspberry. if I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's getting agonisingly close to a product launch. So do you think it's time to dip a toe in the water? Alan Kohler was very excited about them a while ago and looking at recent company appointments and announcements, it certainly all looks positive. Kind of regards, Jamie. Uh, hi,
0: Jamie. Um this is not on my radar, radar either, This is to me it's a concept stock so they haven't got a product in market, there's no product market fit, there's no traction um, so it's really difficult to assess what's going to happen, the range of outcomes is really wide. Um, so for me I avoid these situations, I like to wait for businesses that have traction, that have revenue, um, narrower range of outcomes and I'm more um, easily able
1: to pr- um, put a value on them. Maybe just a broader example with situations like this, at least the way I approach it, is normally, uh, unless you're an absolute expert on these type of th- situations, and I am certainly not, then it's often better just to wait until you're actually much more certain there's a future for the product like Alex described. Uh, Nanosonics is a, a good example where, uh, I think I've recommended that in 2014 at about 78.5 cents, I think it was, and that's a $4, 60 uh, stock today. Now I wasn't the first person to nanosonics and I, I'm guessing compared to some other people I was actually probably quite slow to it. Uh, and even though I think it's probably a little bit overpriced at the moment, the fact was you're still able to make five or six times your money and you didn't have to be the first person there. So I actually think it's um, just more generally, it's often better just to wait to make sure you're absolutely sure of what you're investing in, if you're not, a, particularly if you're not an expert in some of these high risk and new industries and, um, that are offering new products and that way at least you can um, show there's a bit of a track record for sales and then you've just more or less got to guess uh, or or analyze and forecast what the growth looks like rather than actually having to guess whether there's actually going to be a product Mm -hmm. uh, and what sort of margins it might make.
0: Yeah that's a really great point I mean Investing is so hard and we, we we need shortcuts to try and minimise risk and make the world simpler and I, I really agree with that point because if, if a business has as big a runway as they suggest they do, then you can be late to the party, you can still make great returns and you can just really reduce the risk of really bad outcomes. So yeah, I can't stress that point enough.
1: Yeah, and I think something I've tried to do over the years but I wouldn't say I've done it particularly successfully yet is, and Peter Lynch talked this about in one of his books 40 years ago, but one of the best portfolio management strategies is to, if you buy in early to a business with a particular investment case in mind, as you start seeing the evidence of it playing out, is to then invest more when you're just a lot more confident and it's a lot less risky and you've still got plenty of upside ahead. Yeah
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting because value investors often learn to buy more when prices fall and that's often when the business isn't executing well. Um, But flipping that on its head and investing when the businesses are executing better, um, you're potentially paying higher prices, but you're potentially lowering 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 risk as well. Um, so I think that's a really good point, Nathan. Something that people should think about. John
1: Hempton wrote a really nice blog on this as well. Uh, if you want to go and search it up. The last one. Hi guys. What are your thoughts on the future of Reed Cloud, given the recent competitive uh, competitive drop off, as well as their current level of debt and significant increase in subscribers? Cheers, Matt. Again, I I just feel ruthless because I'm just dismissing these <laughs> companies. But
0: to me, it's just a tiny market. Um, they're domestically focused at this point. Um, you know, they provide essentially a platform of um, learning content to schools. Um, they do so in a, a, a sort of a SAS method. Um, and I I understand that they've got a, local agreements for the content. So for the business to go international, they'd need to get all the publishers to agree to allowing them to provide content internationally. So that's um, that's a long way away and, and there's, um, it's not clear whether they can get that. So at the moment it's just about um, the total addressable market from Australian schools and um, to me that's small, um, the business is trading at 10 times sales like most SaaS companies are and so I just question whether you can get a re- return
1: out of the business starting from such a high price with such a small market. And it is our job to be ruthless. I mean, the number one thing we do is say no to stocks. (laughs) That's right. It's saying no to the 99 that come across your desk and then making sure you get that one when uh, everything's right.
0: Exactly right, yeah. yeah just to stress that because you need, you need to be really discerning, you know you want only the best companies coming into your portfolio and there's only a handful of those so the vast
1: majority should be no so yeah maybe I shouldn't feel bad about being worthless. <laughs> uh, w- just last question for you Alex, we attended a company presentation day yesterday and if you thought there was a bubble in technology then I'd actually be more specific and say the bubble's actually in <laughs> SaaS slash software companies, <Yep>. uh, <laughs> got any broader or specific comments from the companies we saw? and the companies that we've been asked about today?
0: Yeah I mean, well I'm incredibly biased, Ordinate presented and um, so I obviously like that company and they presented well. Um, There are a number of other software companies, I wasn't overly impressed by them. Um, I'd like to see more time play out before I get more interested in those businesses. I thought Lifestyle Communities um, was quite interesting. This business provides provides aged care um, in Melbourne um, so they're still quite early in their journey and I've seen them a few times now and they seem to have a really good culture and quite an interesting operating model. Now I don't think it's the right time in the cycle to get interested in them because their model is based on um, people that own houses that don't have much in super, um, downsizing, taking some of the equity out of their house and then buying into one of these lifestyle communities' communities. Um, so so yeah, I think I think with um, property market prices falling, um, the amount of equity available is reducing so maybe that means for tough times in the short term um, but the business seems to be getting it right and the, um, I, I, I like what they say and do um, so that's one to think about for another day um, but
1: for the rest of them I wasn't overly impressed <laughs> to be honest. What, what were your thoughts, Nathan? Yeah, my general comment is to anyone that's looking at these smaller technology companies is I think there's a world of pain coming. I think there's a huge amount of pretender companies that are claiming they're wonderful SaaS companies, but they're very niche. Uh, there'll be more competition over the next five to 10 years. Uh, the technology, I'm not sure how long it's a competitive advantage. It might be the best mousetrap for the moment, uh, but just technology is changing so quickly. And I, I think it's, you know, if you're zero and you've got your software into an organisation, yes, the switching costs are very high. But I think there's a number of other software-like companies we heard from yesterday that are absolute pretenders and I think they're going to suck a lot of people in and I think they're going to regret buying into them now. Maybe they might make some short-term gains and I'll look like an idiot for a year or two or maybe three but I just really don't care. Like I just can see it all. I can see the evidence everywhere. I can see it in debt markets. I can see it uh, in equity markets and a friend of mine just sent me an email uh, like one second before we walked in the room this morning. I've split it. Uh, which is another well-known, I think, payments company, and they're doing a second round where the founders are selling out. Hmm. Uh, so you just got to be seeing all of the really bullish late-cycle behaviour, and this is the time to really make sure you, you know exactly what you own, why you own it, stick with quality, have modest expectations, and then if we, when we do get the, a, a blowout uh, or a bust in these companies, then hopefully the work we've done, having gone and seen them, means we'll be able to pick them up for a song. Uh, when everyone else gets really disappointed at the fact they pay 10 or 15 times revenue for them and on very little earnings. Yeah, for a company
0: that, you know, talks about the, the sales growth they're having and then they forget to mention that, oh, our competitors
1: are S&P and Oracle. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was quite quite funny for one of the companies. But yeah, yeah, great points, there. No? Yeah. All right, thanks for your time today, Alex. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll be back next week. As always, you can send your questions in to skin in the Game all one word, at investsmart.com.au. Thanks very much. To learn more about
0: the income, growth, and small companies' funds, head over to investmart.com.au. Relevant disclosure documents should be read before making any investment decisions. And if you have any questions you'd like answered by our team, send us an email at skininthegame at